Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kosak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, did you know that nationally between 1.6 and 2.8 million youth run away each year? In Hawaii, 100 to 200 children are reported missing every single month throughout the state. Within 48 hours of a runaway being on the street, one-third, 33%, will be approached for sexual services. 2,000 Hawaii youth may be at risk for commercial sexual exploitation. And this is the reason why we're doing our program today. Adolescent female children are being targeted and sexually trafficked right here in the islands. And just when you think it doesn't happen here, the statistics can prove that it does. And if there's one thing that any of us can do to help someone in this situation, it's to help identify that this is a young girl being trafficked and to help provide safety for them. Now, today, we have some very special guests. We have Jessica Munoz. She comes from Haola Napua. And I don't know if I did that correctly or not, Jessica, but you're smiling like I did it. And she's going to talk about the organization that she's founded that is really trying to help renew trafficked girls and help them feel as though they can be safe, secure, and get back into society and reintegrate. We're also going to talk about an exciting project she's working on with Marielle Moriwake. She's the project architect. We're going to talk about how you can create a therapeutic environment that meets the needs of these adolescent female children and yet also is different than a standard type of environment that you or I might live in. This is a safe location for them to live, but it's not like a regular house, and we'll talk about what that means. First, I'd like to introduce nurse practitioner Jessica. Now, you work in Polly Momi's emergency room, and that's part of what made you become so passionate about this. What started this this desire you have to volunteer to help these adolescent female children be found and become safe? So back in 2009, um, I was working in uh, a few different emergency rooms here on island, and I started seeing young girls being brought into our emergency room. They were brought in oftentimes by a perpetrator or, you know, someone that you just looked at the person who was with them and you were concerned that something didn't seem right. You know, I had had lots of training in sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse, but what I was seeing wasn't fully fitting into each one of those categories. And so it led me on this journey of trying to identify what exactly I was seeing. And so I started doing a lot of research on trafficking and what it looks like, and then realized that these local children are being exploited, that it's not children and young women from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, but that it's actually American children who this is happening to. And the fact that they can be exploited or trafficked, not only by a pimp or a perpetrator, but families can traffic their kids uh, for drug money, for rent money. Um, other girls can traffic other girls. Um, and so it, it's a quite complex issue that's gone under-identified, misidentified within this state for, for several years. And even across the country, we're just now really awakening to the fact that many of these kids have existed in our social service sectors 
in probation, in the judiciary. And some kids come from homes that, you know, you have two well-established parents and an established family, but because of the internet, it's so easy to recruit girls into this lifestyle. So we're not just talking about adolescent female children from low socioeconomic backgrounds. We're talking about really anyone. Absolutely. And you mentioned the internet. How does that play a role in this? So because of all the social media apps that clearly are developing every single day um, and the easy access kids have, the perpetrators no longer driving a white van like we envision in movies, but they're on their cell phones. And those cell phones can be accessed in their rooms at all times. And so there, the FBI will actually tell you that there hasn't been a time in history that children have been easier access than right now. There's over 750,000 child predators online right now at any time. And so what happens is, you know, we tend to, and, and girls tend to put a lot of things on social media, how they're feeling, what they're wearing, if they're upset, you know. And so what happens is these traffickers, these pimps look for signs that someone's vulnerable And all it can take sometimes is saying, you look really beautiful today and liking an Instagram photo or a Facebook post or a Snapchat or one of those things. And it can literally lead into a cycle of abuse and violence that many of these girls never, ever intended. We're talking girls as young as 11, 12, 13 years old being recruited and not realizing that this guy who's befriending them, who wants to be her boyfriend is really somebody who is conning her. Now, you were encountering these young girls in the emergency room. In what capacity were you seeing them? Were they injured? Had they been beaten? What was, what, how would they present to you to make you say, oh, there's something going on here? Sometimes there were signs of assault, um, but other times they could come in for asthma, you know, and not have an inhaler. But the person they were with was doing all the talking. Their history wasn't very clear. The ID didn't look normal. Um, There's also been situations where um, when the uh, child was sitting in the room and questioning was started, they ran out of the the ER with the perpetrator um, because too many questions were being asked. Um, Also, you have a lot of kids who come in off the streets who might just be looking for something to eat or someone to talk to. So you would see that in the emergency room, and then it would raise some red flags. Now, one of the other myths that I think is important to talk about is we hear about these things, and you wonder, couldn't these young girls choose to leave? But that's not always a choice that they have. Yes, I always like to say there's no such thing as a child prostitute. And the reason being is that These children cannot choose to be in this lifestyle. They undergo severe psychological brainwashing and traumatization through this this, um, thing called exploitation or trafficking. Um, Oftentimes, they have been brainwashed into believing that they love him, that they have chosen this lifestyle. Um, But the reality is, is that they really can't leave, whether he threatens her or her family. Um, whether she doesn't know exactly where she is, where she's located, and then where is she going to go? Who is she going to run to? Because before 
um, this last year when legislation was passed where there was a state law against trafficking, sex trafficking, you know, oftentimes these girls are being arrested and detained and put into detention and locked up in corrections. And so as a child and as somebody who's very vulnerable, who are you going to turn to? Who are you going to run to to get help? And if you don't even realize you're a victim of a crime, it can be very, very complicated. So they were being arrested by the police because they were being told that they were being a prostitute. They were doing something illegal. But in fact, they were victims of sex trafficking. Yes. So under federal definition, children under the age of 18, if they are involved in the sex industry or in commercial sexual exploitation, they're automatically a victim. You don't have to prove force, fraud, coercion. It is against federal law. Because they're under the age of consent. 18. Yep. So if you are under 18, really, you could be victimized at any time. So it takes that choice argument out because they can't choose. It's not, it's not a choice. Lots of scary information that you're sharing with us, but definitely makes it even more important that we take on this topic and discuss further how we can work together to help identify these young adolescent female children and also provide some sort of safe zone for them. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And today we are talking about sex trafficking and how we can all help to identify victims of this and also help to provide them some safe zones and places where they can seek assistance and hopefully get out of the circumstances that they have unfortunately been victimized and put in. When we come right back, we're going to talk further with nurse practitioner Jessica Munoz. She is the founder of Ho'ola Napua. And then we're going to talk with Mariel Moriwake. She's a project architect about how we can really use the specific needs that we have to take care of these young girls and create and design a facility where they can live safely and do so in such an environment where they are safe, but the unique special needs that we have for this community. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and today we're talking about a very difficult topic, but a very important one. We're talking about trafficked adolescent female children right here in Hawaii that's happening with our local children. These are not people coming from elsewhere. These are our own children in the islands. We've been talking before the break with Jessica Munoz, and you founded Ha'ola Napua, which is an organization that is trying to help trafficked girls. What does your organization help to provide? So we have four main program areas, health, education, advocacy, and reintegration. So under our health pillar um, is our mentoring program. So we have a program that works with girls once they've been identified as victims of trafficking. We provide them with a one-on-one mentor. Oftentimes survivors will tell you that one of the most important things in their healing process is having that trusted person in their life. We also have family support group um, that works with parents whose kids 
have been victimized. And then we are in the process of developing out Pearl Haven, which is our comprehensive residential treatment campus and program um, that will provide a year-long residential placement. Um, We do a lot of education in the schools, which leads to identification, but also prevention work. We've talked to, in the last two and a half years, almost 6,500 students. Um, across the islands. Um, We do a lot with advocacy. We support laws that uh, better protect our children. Uh, We do a lot of community education. And then we also educate law enforcement, healthcare professionals, social services, judiciary, anyone who could possibly come in contact with these kids. Because what happens is they get labeled as delinquents, truants. Um, They might have a drug and alcohol problem, but what's lying beneath the surface? And that's what's important to realize because oftentimes these problems are secondary to the fact that they're being exploited. And so we're trying to create a comprehensive response framework that's needed because this population is so marginalized, so vulnerable, so traumatized that, you know, one intervention isn't going to be enough. So you need um, a complex, comprehensive, you know, system response from case management to social work to law enforcement to advocacy to mentors to community-wide understanding how prevalent this issue is in order to create the safety net that's needed for successful reintegration. So let's talk a little bit about Pearl Haven. Mariel, that's where you come in. You are a project architect from Architects Hawaii, and you've been tasked with trying to help establish what would be the appropriate environment to help support Ho'ola Napua's needs for these young adolescent female children to have this place to live. It's a residential location. How is it different than a house that anyone else might live in? I think the first thing is to make sure that it's in a rural community because they can they'll be re- removed from the usual settings that they've might have been exposed to previously. Um, I also think that the um, the space should be connected to nature. So important to to be able to connect to the outdoors and have that level of um, uh, spontaneity and autonomy, control over their environment. Control over your environment is is one of those things I think that they lost um, because they lost their identity. I think Jessica would agree. She's nodding her head. Um, so we want to be able to provide them with opportunities for personalization and control. Um, we want to teach them how to reintegrate with, by providing support spaces such as uh, laundry. A teaching kitchen. Uh, there's and uh, so would each one of these young women, these these female children, would they need their own room? Do you have places where you'd have more than one person in a room to provide that interpersonal support? We're talking about having a third of the bedrooms um, private, depending for one occupant, depending on the level of their acuity. Um, if they're more independent, then you know they're probably better suited for a single room. But we are concerned about safety, so we do want to make sure that um, that there's always eyes. Everybody's looking out for each other, and so a roommate can help alert staff in case a girl is in trouble. 
Well, and I think it also allows for another therapeutic partnership of having not just you feeling isolated and alone, but to have this way to outreach, to talk to someone, to establish even almost like a mentorship. You see someone do better and you want to do better and have that other relationship. So I could see it both ways. Have a roommate, not have a roommate. There may be unique circumstances where it would be more appropriate for one or the other. How many residents would be able to stay at this facility at one time? We're planning for a 32-bed licensed facility. And Jessica, that sounds like a lot to me, but that's probably not. Not even enough. It is a lot with this level of care that's required with this population. However, the need is so great. um, And our plan is to do a staged opening. So it'll likely be 8 to 12 residents at first, then 12 to 20, and then 20 to 32 by year three. Um, But the nice thing is with this facility and the build out and the renovation and everything that we're doing, we're preparing to have capacity at 32. And I've been working with other um, organizations around the country who do residential care and planning out kind of the programming for this. Um, And 32 beds is is good. I mean, it's a good size. And it'll be nice because it'll be one of the larger in the country. But Um, we definitely have the need. Oh, absolutely. Because we're not just looking at Oahu, we're looking at all of the neighbor islands, and even potentially Samoa and Tonga, and, you so know, really please, outreaching absolutely. through the Pacific. Absolutely. Who would need to be in a residential facility versus someone who could go back to home if they ran away from home? What would be the characteristics that would suggest that someone should really stay in a residential location? So there's a series of tests that we have in place um, as far as psychological evaluation as well as um, looking at all the socio uh, and social dynamics, especially with family and who's involved and where the trafficking happened, how long it happened, what's their age. But I can tell you, overall, the majority of survivors need an intensive intervention, intensive residential. Because the trauma is so severe, recovery takes a lifetime Um, However, programming that starts from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you go to bed in the evening and almost reprogramming of the brain through this amazing safe haven and environment that we're creating is all part of the process. So our goal is that the girls would be able to stay with us for a year and then be able to transition back home if it's safe or into other arrangements. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And today we're talking about a difficult topic. We're talking about sex trafficking of adolescent female children. What happens and what can we do to support their recovery and reintegration into society and help them through this traumatic experience? When we come back, we're going to talk more with Jessica Munoz. She is a nurse practitioner who established Ho'ola Napua, which is an organization that really helps to identify and also provide resources and education for anyone who might come in contact with these victims. But also, really, Jessica, you have a mission to try and help them to get back into society. We're also going to talk more with Mario Moriwake from Architects Hawaii. She's the project architect. And we're going to talk a little bit about how how we design the space so that it can provide the most appropriate therapeutic environment. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine, Hawaii Pacific University, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Jessica Munoz. She is a nurse practitioner who has taken on the mission of trying to help to really identify and provide resources for adolescent female children that are sex trafficked right here in the islands. We also have Marielle Moriwake. She's a project architect. She's from Architects Hawaii, and we're talking about how to design a therapeutic space that will really help these young girls to find a way to recover from this experience. Now, Mariel, you talked a little bit about personalization. And, you know, for some people that may be, I want to put posters on the wall, but that's not really what you're talking about with personalizing spaces. What exactly does that mean from an architectural perspective? Um, It might have to do with putting posters on the wall, but definitely they want to have uh, their own they could have a wall that they put mementos or their own artwork. Um, it could also mean um, being in a large room with um, movable furniture so that they can choose where they want to put stuff. Right. You know, instead of I have to be in this place, the bed is always over here, I get to make it my own space. Yeah. You know, I mean, girls in bathrooms, just, you know, realistically, we like to spend some time getting ready in the morning. I mean, if you're dealing with 32 residents, are there 32 bathrooms? I don't, I mean, this would be a nightmare for my brothers to ever have to live with 32 of me. So I'm just wondering, how do we create those spaces so that there is enough appropriate facilities of all types? We're hoping to provide um, private toilet shower rooms. Like en suite in um, each in each bedroom or at least something that's a little more private. Yeah, so we're we're definitely not going to do the gang shower thing where everybody's looking under like my the high stalls. school nightmare, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um okay. but hopefully um we're going to have an area for changing where they can prep, you know, primp themselves and kind of sure. look good and have that. What girls, we like to do it. Yeah. I'm the first one to admit it. Got to do a little bit with the hair. It gets a little crazy otherwise. Okay, so we want to create these personal private spaces. And this is all part of the therapeutic approach to helping these girls really feel like they are valued and can have their private space but also have a group environment where they can get support and they can also feel feel like they're safe. Now, Jessica, I would imagine someone would need to live there. In addition to the residents, there has to be a therapy team that is available there 24-7. Yeah, it's a fully staffed facility, or campus we call it, um, where you'll have a clinical director, operations director, and case management, social work, therapists, line staff, uh, therapeutic line milieu staff, um, as well as, you know, we're our property that we have allows us to do equine therapy. We have plans for art therapy, dance, um, agriculture on site. There's tons of places for walking trails. Um, so creating that personalized space as well outside. Um, and that's the beauty of our property is it's 12 acres. And it allows for, as Mariel said, integration with nature, which is so healing. And, um, you know, it allows us the space, too, for 
um, personalized one-on-one conversations. Because oftentimes, I mean, as anyone knows, if you've gone to camp for a weekend, by three days, you're going, get me away from all of these other people. So creating that environment, especially since everything takes place on site, on site schooling, mental health care, life skill development, everything is on site. So creating the space, the spaces, the way that the layout is within Pearl Haven is so important because we're talking a year long of living there. And you really need to be able to feel comfortable yes. in that space. Non-institutionalized feeling, yet safe, because this is a very high-risk population. High risk with mental health issues, high risk for running, high risk for you know hurting someone. Um, and so we have to account for all of those things. That's why we're so thankful for Architects Hawaii and Marielle and what she brings to the table because it's challenging to help someone to feel privacy, but then also to keep them safe. And these are children, 11, 12, 13-year-old children. And any parents out there listening know how much you protect your children at home and in the safe space that you've created. And that really is a difficulty. It's the balance between privacy and safety that you have to somehow navigate. Mariel, are there any tricks to the trade? Is there anything that you've learned in this process that you would know in the future there are certain aspects that you have to consider architecturally? Uh, Well, I know there's probably high staff burnout, and um, I know we focus a lot on the girls, and that's really everybody's goal, but we want to make sure that we take care of the staff because they're the ones that are going to create that that special bond that helps them reintegrate into society. So we want to make sure that our staff lounge has that connection uh, to the outside if they need to get, you know, quick, uh, quickly uh, get away from the grocery to take a breather or, um, but they can still kind of quickly get to the girls if they need to. And that's a really important point, is often we think about staff last, and yet in this case, because they're really important to this whole process, we need to make sure that their space is just as inviting and therapeutic for the staff as the space is for the girls. We want to make sure that everyone is is given equal opportunity to be outside in nature, and that really, it's been proven again and again to be healing, to be outside. And so it really is, it sounds like it's echoed in the approach that you're taking. Now, Jessica, what should someone do if they see someone that they're afraid might be a victim of trafficking? So we've talked about the four-pillar approach to once they are identified and trying to help them. But for some of our listeners, if you think someone is a victim of trafficking, what should you do? So you can always call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which I do not have that number memorized. (laughs) Um, But you can also call police. You can call law enforcement. You can call FBI. You can call Honolulu Police. You can call Homeland Security. Um, You can also, um, you know, you can always call our mentoring program as well. Uh, We do have a 24-hour number. But I think the most important thing is call the police if you think there's a problem contact the police. And that's step one. Now, once somebody is identified as a potential trafficker and or trafficked victim, then the police may investigate. And if that is determined to be a serious situation, 
how can they get involved with your group? So there's a referral process. Um, we get calls all the time from social workers, probation, um, other organizations and entities um, wanting services for kids. Um, also, there's Susanna Wesley Community Center, which does case management um, and provides great case management for trafficked victims, trafficked kids. Um, and so, you know, an SATC and some of these other agencies do wonderful work. Um, and so it's really a collaborative um, approach. We right now are focused on providing solid mentoring programs, um, family support services, and then eventually Pearl Haven, which hopefully will be open at the beginning of 2019. So we're working on it. Mariel, it's a job that you're, you've got a lot of work to do. I'm not alone. I have many partners, and I'd um, like to give credit to also um, DPI, Design Partners, uh, in, Syn- in Synergy Engineering, Kai Hawaii, Joe Uno and Associates, and um, Hold on a Pool. And what's All amazing right. is this is pro bono. So this has literally been pro bono service. Well, and I, I thank both of you for sharing your expertise, for bringing this topic to light, and for taking the time to talk with us about it today. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich, and Dr. Kathleen Kozak will be right here next week on The Body Show.